Let me invite you to go back to Matthew chapter 6. And uh, as you turn there, uh, I've had a few of you ask how our trip uh, this last week was. Um, my family went to Michigan to see my family a little bit, um, get some rest before the surgery coming up. And uh, so I appreciate those who said you were praying for us. Uh, we did have a, we had a wonderful trip. Um, one of my goals was to be able to spend some one-on-one time with, with my wife and then with each of our children, Mia and Isaiah. And by God's provision and uh, grace, I was able to do that. Uh, my mom is a, is a kindergarten teacher, and every year, um, so Mia was able to go to school with her, so she was really happy about that. But uh, every year, that her school does a big princess ball at a fundraiser. It just so happened to be the weekend that we were there. And so this guy went to a princess ball. I've never had so much glitter on me in my life. <laughs> it was a great experience, though. Great experience. Um, before we dive into the message, I, you know, as I said in my, my note, uh, this Sunday is the last Sunday uh, the Regmies are going to be with us. They're relocating uh, back to Missouri and uh, so we're going to miss them. Uh, it's been great to have them here. Great to have uh, Jordan's uh, parents be here every other week, it seemed like. Um, but uh, uh, it was great to, 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 to get to know them. And we need to, we need to pray for the transition and, and pray for them. And uh, you always have a home here. So we will miss you. So before I dive into the message, I just want to pray for your transition. Father, we're grateful for this family who, by your will, has you made their paths cross with us for a short time, and um, I pray as they transition uh, back to Missouri that you would go before them and that you would guide them and provide for them uh, spiritually, materially, emotionally, and so we're grateful uh, that we were able to to rub shoulders for this time with Ayush and Jordan and Aiden. And we do pray for them. And we just ask that they would have a, a good transition to Missouri. Now as we focus our attention to Matthew's gospel, I pray, Father, I pray that you would guide this, to, this time together in this discussion. And, uh, you know, I, I fully admit I don't have words of wisdom to share right now, but your word is truth. And so I pray your spirit would use your word to, to, to teach us right now. So soften our hearts, and may we be receptive to your word, and may I be able to communicate clearly what the text is saying, and, and we, we rely on you for all these things. And so we're, we're coming to you with a, with a dependent spirit, but with a confident spirit, and not in our abilities, but in, in you, and who you are, and the power of your word. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Well, we've already read the text, so I won't do that this morning, but I, I, I wanted to ask you a question here, and here's the question, and just think about it. You don't have to answer out loud if you don't want to. Um, you can think about it here. Here's a simple question. Does God reward obedience? And just think about that. Ponder that for a second here. Now, some of you, you instantly you want to answer that. Some of the more analytical people are starting to ask questions back right now in your head, right? Okay. Well, what do you mean by or what about? And, 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 and I get that. Well, let me put it another way. Can we count on God's reward if we obey his commandments? Think about that. Can we count on God's rewards, his blessing in our lives if we obey what he says, okay? While you ponder that, let me tell you a quick story. My brother was um, uh, always the good kid, my older brother. He was always the good kid. Uh, I have a brother three years older and I have a brother nine years younger. And so my older brother and I, we did everything together, grew up together. I mean, it was just the two of us and we kind of did everything together. And he was always a good kid. He was the one who always got me in trouble, okay? Um, and, and I freely admit, I did the stuff, okay? I, I'm not saying I didn't do it, okay? But what happened is, is my brother would instigate it. My, my older brother would be like, hey, Jeremy, you know what I think we should do? 
I think we should. And it'd be some really dumb thing. And then here I am, three years younger, trying to prove myself to him, like, yeah, yeah. He'd be like, all right, but I think you're better at it than me, Jeremy. I should have known right there, okay? But he says, I said, you're better. You should go first, you know? And so I do whatever it is, and then guess what happens? Mom and dad find out, or they hear the crash, or they hear the Jeep start when I'm three years old, <laughs> Because I wanted to wash the windshield wiper, wash the windshield and turn on the windshield wipers. And mom looked out, and this was before you had to put the brake in to turn the key on. And, and I'm out there in the driver's seat starting the Jeep at like three or four years old. It was my brother's idea, okay? You know, he, but, you know, he was always a good kid. And, then, and, then, and that reputation even went into church, you know, of all places where people should see through hypocrisy, you know. <laughs> My brother had this reputation, and so we had the Iwana program at our church, right? Okay, and we grew up in Iwana, and my brother and I, we did all the books, and we did all the memorization, all those things, and then our particular church had this award, okay, and I'm not advocating we do this, okay, I'm just saying our experience. We had this award, it was called Clubber of the Year Award, okay, and it was a a much sought after achievement, okay, my brother got this thing three years in a row, okay? I mean, this was, this was the person I had to live with, all right? And, and so he had this thing three years in a row, and, and, and it was only a four-year stint. So year four comes along, and I'll never forget. We're sitting in the auditorium. The person gets up, and he says, and now for the general club, as they called it then. They didn't call it TNT then. They called it general club. They said, and now for the general club, Clubber of the Year Boy Award goes to. And I literally, I elbowed the kid next to me. I'm like, yeah, that's my brother. And everyone around was like, saying, oh, Jason Scott, you know, three years in a row. And they announced a different name. There was like a gasp in the church. <laughs> you know, like, How did this happen? And, you know, my mom, who was a leader, was in the meeting. And later on, as we got older, she said, well, they, they were talking. They're like, we can't give the kid four years in a row. We've got to find someone else. And so my brother, you know, didn't get the award, award four years in a row. Now, why do I tell you this story? I tell you the story because sometimes what seems like a slam dunk, sometimes what seems like a sure thing doesn't actually happen. And I think that's the way Jesus is warning us in this text here. When, you know, usually when, if you were to ask me the question, does God reward obedience? The answer is typically yes, okay? I mean, for those of you who are saying yes, yeah, you were right, partially, okay? For those of you who are a little bit more analytical and said, well, it depends, you're also right, okay? And that's what Jesus is getting at in this text here. Now, before we go into it, let me remind you where we've been. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has called his disciples to him. The sermon starts with just the 12. This is the beginning, the end of chapter 4, the very beginning of chapter 5. Jesus brings all these disciples to him, and he starts to teach them. And what does he start to teach them? The first part of the sermon, which we refer to as the Beatitudes, is really Jesus describing what a true disciple is like. And so what he does is, and this is where he starts with, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And so he's starting to describe who it is that is considered to be a disciple or a member of the kingdom of God. And so he's going through this, and we said as we went through the series earlier, we talked about how that poor in spirit really is kind of an overarching attribute that we should be looking at, and then the rest is just kind of describing that in a little bit more detail. Then after he goes through these beatitudes of blessed are, and he talks about all these peacemakers and those who are reviled and all these things, He then gives a couple metaphors. He says, here's what you are. If you're a disciple, this is what you are. You are salt and light in this world. He says, basically, you're the hope of this world. This isn't a matter of, do you want to be? He says, this is how I've set up the plan. You, my disciples, are salt and light in this community, in this world. And so that really is instructive to us, that if you call yourself a disciple of Jesus Christ, he is expecting you, it's part of the deal, to be salt and light. This is not you become a disciple of Christ, you become a Christian, and then if you decide to go the extra mile and be salt and light, and then you can do that. No, no, no. No, no, Jesus is saying here, no, this is who you are. You're salt and light. 
And so after that, then Jesus talks about what is expected of these disciples. And he says some shocking things. First of all, he talks about the, the law. And he says, don't think I've come to, to, to uh, uh, you know, put away the law. I said, I've come to fulfill the law. And then in chapter 5, he says this. In verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and, glorif- and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He says, you have to live righteous lives, lives that people see. But after he talks about the fulfillment of the law, in verse 20, this is what I want to draw your attention to. Chapter 5, verse 20, he says this. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for you and me to look back on this, you know, we think, well, yeah, that's, I mean, Pharisees, they weren't really good people. But in this day, when Jesus was talking to his disciples, I mean, they would have gotten Clubber of the Year Award four years in a row, okay? All right? They were the people who were considered the most spiritual and people would look up to and would want to imitate. And so when he says, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the, the, the righteousness of the scribes or the Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. That was shocking. So no doubt that brought some questions in the disciples' minds. So then for the rest of the chapter, rest of chapter 5, Jesus gives six illustrations of what that looks like. He talks about anger, lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, and loving your enemies. And he says, here's what it looks like to have exceeding righteousness. So this is the sermon that Jesus is doing. But Jesus knows the heart of man. And so then, where we're at today, he gives some dangers to avoid. He says there's a danger, though, of exceeding righteousness. And being a disciple of Christ is a risky calling. And I believe there are at least two dangers that Jesus wants us to consider in this text. First of all, and we have just two points this morning, is this. There is the ever-present danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Okay? This is what Jesus is talking about. He says, there is the ever-present danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, that is not hyperbole when I phrased it that way, when I said ever-present danger. We are experiencing this in this very moment. Okay? If you're a disciple of Christ, you're experiencing this danger that Jesus is warning us about right now. I'm experiencing it. I'm preaching a sermon right now. By most standards, that's a good thing. Okay, That's a good thing to do with your time is to try to tell people what God's Word says. But I am living right now in the danger of doing this good thing for the wrong reason. And you, you're in church this morning. By most standards, that's a good thing to do. And you're here, and most of you, you're still awake, and that's a positive. I'm really happy about that, okay? And so you're tracking with me here, okay? So you're looking at me, and you're paying attention. That's a good thing. But you, right now, are living in this danger that we're talking about of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Why did you come today? Why are you here? Why are you listening? Why are, why are you doing what you're Why am I preaching today? Why, why am I choosing the words that I'm choosing? Is it because I'm trying to gain favor? Or is it because I'm trying to point people to Christ? And all these things. We live in this ever-present danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. This is what Jesus is saying. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others. This is verse 1 of chapter 6. In order to be seen of them, for you have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. I think Romans chapter 6 excuse me, Romans chapter 3 needs to inform us and help us be very suspicious of our own hearts. Now, we should be generous towards other people and other people's motivations. We should assume the best of other people. But for our own souls, we should be very suspicious of this. What am I talking about? Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. If you're taking notes, let's write that down. Romans 3, 10 through 12. It says this, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, even not one. Okay? And so right there, Jesus there, or excuse me, Paul who's writing it, 
talks about, the, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, and he says, the heart of man is to take good things and do them for the wrong reasons. And this is what Jesus is warning us. He says, there's a danger. First of all, in chapter 5, and verse 16, he says, let your light shine before others. He says, do good works before other people. He says, make sure that people see you have righteousness. And he says, your righteousness needs to exceed that of the, the, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he says, okay, but before you get too far ahead of this, i got to warn you about something. Don't do this for the wrong reason. Because he knows the heart of man. He knows the truths of Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12 that I just read to you. He knows that we have a propensity to do good things for wrong reasons. To do the right thing, but not for the reasons that we should. I mean, and I'm going to get into this a little bit later on probably, but obviously the goal is to do all to the glory of God, right? Isn't that what we're told in Scripture several times? But we can do... What we know is true, what we know is right, so that we can receive praise. I mean, isn't this what the whole text is about here? Jesus' three examples here of giving to the poor, of praying, of fasting. I mean, these are three things that every one of us would say are good ideas and the things that we should do. And Jesus knows that, and he takes these things and he says, but hey, there's danger here. There's danger Jesus, we need to understand that his warning, though, is not a prohibition against public piety. Okay, what do I mean by that? This is not saying that um, we do not, we got to make sure no one can see any act of righteousness that we do. How do I know this? I'm sure because of chapter 5 and verse 16. It says that, you know, let your light shine before others. So Jesus isn't changing his mind here. He's not contradicting himself. The concern, though, as you can pick up, is motivation. Now, what I wrote in my Bible, and I, I, I make notes in my Bible. I don't know if you do, but um, I think it's a good idea. I highlight, I, I, I write little notes in my, my Bible. In verse 16 of chapter 5, under give glory, I put a little arrow, and I wrote the word motivation. Okay? And then in chapter 6 and verse 1, where it says, in order to be seen by them, I did another little arrow and I wrote motivation. Because this is what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is getting at the heart of motivation. He's not saying, never do something that other people can see. Now, he's using some pretty uh, uh, hyperbolic examples here about the left hand, not knowing what the right hand is doing, and things like that. But he's trying to prove the point here that what he is concerned about is not so much about what we're doing, but why we're doing it. And so that's the reason why chapter 5 and verse 16 is legitimate because we should let our light shine before others. We should do good works uh, before other people. But the purpose should always be to give glory to the Father. But in chapter 6, we should be cautious. We should be very wary of our own propensity to do things in order to be seen of other people. The illustration of giving to the poor here, we can make contemporary illustrations or, or application to that. Why do we give? In order to understand that Jesus is concerned about the heart, do we, do we only give for tax credits? Is that the only reason why we do that? Well, Jesus says, let's keep your money then. Because he's saying, I'm warning you, beware of practicing your righteousness for others and be seen to them, or to be get personal benefit from it. To give, do we give to get influence? Do we give to the poor to maintain an image. And we could go on and on with how we could do a good thing with the wrong reason. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we never do this in public, but he's saying, why are we doing this? What about prayer? He says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and the street corner. And he talks about how that they want to be seen of other people. Now, he's not saying there, because he says go into the closet, he's not saying that we can never have public prayer. So a few minutes ago, uh, there's been twice now in our service where I've stood before you and I've offered prayer on our behalf to the Father. I was not in violation of Matthew chapter 6 here when I did that. Now, I could have been if my purpose was to be seen of you. How does that make application today? Well, when you do pray with other people, Do you obsess 
over what words you choose? Are you thinking as you're praying, I wonder what they're thinking of me. I wonder if they think I'm an idiot. I wonder if I sound stupid. I don't know what words to say. Do you refuse to pray with other people out of fear of what they may think of you? You see, this is, I believe, getting at the heart of what Jesus is saying here. When we pray, we are going to the Father, and we're having a conversation with the Father. And, and, and I guarantee it. I guarantee it. We, and, and this is a very common thing, because I've talked to a lot of people about this. There's a, there's, here in our church, there's, this is a common thing where people are concerned about praying in front of other people because of what other people may think of them. And I always try to get people to understand. I say, look, how many times have you sat in a church service, and someone got up to pray, and you thought to yourself, man, that person's stupid. Okay, or how many times have you thought, man, that person doesn't know how to pray? Or how many times have you thought, as someone else was praying, you thought, man, that person needs to take some praying lessons here, okay? Now, I dare say that's never happened. But yet we assume other people are thinking that of us. I believe it's a tactic of the enemy to cause other people and what we're, to keep our image, to keep us from doing what we should be doing. You know, I was talking to someone uh, not too long ago, and, and I confessed to them, I, I, and I was, I was kind of ashamed to confess this, okay? Um, but in, in June, my wife and I will be married 15 years in June, okay? And uh, she is the, I mean, outside of the gospel saving my soul from the flames of hell, the best gift God has ever given to me. And I, 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 she's not even here this morning, so you know I'm not just sucking up to her, okay? Um, it, is, it is amazing, but she is watching at home. Um, so, uh, um, you know, it's, it's amazing, you know, the gift that, that God has given to me and my wife. God has used her in so many ways. But here's why I confessed to someone not too long ago. I said, the hardest person that I find to pray with sometimes is my wife. I can get with you guys and I can pray and I can, you know, not think anything of it. But sometimes to pray with my wife is difficult. I mean, I've been wrestling with that for a long time. Why is that? And I don't know all the reasons for that. But here's one thing I, I think I know. There is nobody on this planet that knows me better than my wife. There is nobody in this room that knows my weaknesses like my wife does. Now, some of you right now are thinking, wow, she knows a lot. Because <laughs> I know your weaknesses, Jeremy. You know, and, and it's hard for me to put up a facade with someone who knows me that well. So what do we do? We avoid those situations. Now, God's been growing me in this, and, and we've been enjoying sweet prayer time together, but we, we, I don't think we're the only couple that deals with that, though. And I don't know all the reasons why that is, but I think part of it is because we're afraid of what other people are thinking of us in the moment of prayer. I remember when I, I told you before, I, I worked at a, a retirement community, and um, I, uh, they, it was loosely associated with the Methodist church. And so they had chapel a couple times a week. And often I would speak in chapel. They had a chaplain there. I was not the chaplain, but I would, I would fill in for him or I would, I would just you know, be a guest teacher or whatever like this. And so um, I learned a lot about you know, the Methodist Church. I learned a lot about uh, how people approach prayer and things like that in those experiences. I remember this would happen routinely. I, I, would, I would pray or I would teach a lesson. I would close in prayer. And... It would happen pretty often where someone, a little old lady usually, uh, would come up to me and say, where did you get that prayer? And at first, you know, I, I wasn't the most, you know, polished person then that I am now. And, um, and so I'd be like, what do you mean? You know, and... Uh, She'd be like, well, where did you get that prayer? And, uh, or that prayer was just inspiring. 
And it was shocking to me because I never thought about prayers as performances before. But in a lot of ways, that's how people view prayer. I believe when Jesus is looking at here and he's saying, hey, look, don't pray to be seen of other people. So when you go to the Lord in prayer, if you're with a group, now I don't think it's wrong to have other people in mind as you're praying. Obviously, you pray for other people that are there and all that. But are you worried about impressing or are you worried about what they will think of you in your prayers? If that is true, Jesus is warning you this morning against that. He says, don't worry about that. He says, what about the illustration of fasting here? He says, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites. They disfigure their faces. And, you know, it, was, it would be these people that, you know, they would, they would, you know, put on the worst clothing they could find. And they would go in the street and grab some dirt and put it on their faces. And they would just kind of, you know, trudge through the city. And people say, man, are you feeling okay? Oh, no, no, I'm okay. I'm just fasting. And then they would go on, you know. I mean, they were just trying to get the praise of other people. He says, don't do that if you're going to fast. He says, you know, look good. I was trying to think how to illustrate this. I'm trying to go, like, how do we do this? First of all, um, we don't fast nearly as much as we should, and that's an application point coming in a minute, so I'll warn you about that now. But, um, you know, my friend, he was, he was a missionary for several years, and so he would go to missions conferences, and I remember uh, him telling me the story that at one particular church, they were at a missions conference with a whole bunch of other missionaries, the church was extraordinarily generous and gave uh, all the missionaries there a, a, a new, for, for the men, a new suit, for the ladies, new dresses, and really nice, and they went, took them shopping, made sure that the alterations were made and it fit and all that stuff, and so they all had new suits and, and dresses, and, and it was really generous of the church to do that for them. And so uh, uh, the next week, my friend goes to the next church where they're having a missions conference, and lo and behold, there's a guy, another, a fellow missionary, that was with him in the previous church, and they show up. And he, uh, he goes to, to give his presentation. And my friend noticed that this other missionary had the same dumpy suit on that he had when he showed up at the other church. And he knew that he had a brand new suit in his car that was perfectly tailored to him and everything like that, so it was ready to go. And, you know, my friend, I think, even asked him, why aren't you wearing the new suit? And he's like, well, you know, I you know, want to keep an image and, you know, of poor missionary because you've got to get your finances and support. And I thought, you know, when he was telling me this, I thought, well, that's, that's an illustration. This is God's blessed you with something and you're refusing to, to show it because you're afraid of what other people are going to think of you trying to have this level of spirituality or whatever. It's not a perfect application. I realize that, but think through that. Think about your prayer life. Think about your giving. Think about, do you fast even at all? When you do, do you let people know? Do you let pe- is, it, is, it a, is it a constant goal of yours to let people know, you know that you're pretty faithful in your Bible reading? And, and let's be honest, we're all masters at this of working into conversations things we want people to know about us. And Jesus is saying, be careful about this. I'm, he says, you've got to live your life in a way that glorifies me. You've got to have people, you've got to do these exceeding righteousness, but there's danger here of doing the, wrong, the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, I also want to point out here, not only does Jesus, this is not a prohibition against public piety, but Jesus makes some subtle assumptions in this text here. Did you notice in verse 2, he says, when you give, In verse 5, he says, when you pray. In verse 7, when you pray. In verse 16, when you fast. Jesus doesn't say, if you do these things here. He says, when you do them. And so the assumption is here, if you're a disciple of Christ, you should be doing these things. So let me ask you, are you giving to the poor? Are you praying? Are you fasting? Now, I've been convicted about all three of these things, and particularly the fasting part, because there was a time in my life where that was a regular part of my life, and for, for whatever reason, I have gotten away from that. And so this is my public confession that I need to get back to fasting here. 
And, and I think as a church, we should do this to gl- collectively at times and say, hey, we got something big that's coming up or we really want to, to God to intervene. And so this is something that I'm starting to re-implement into my life. My wife's surgery tomorrow. There's some, so some fasting going on in my life and in very small things. It doesn't have to be just food in case you're wondering, you know, if you're hypoglycemic and you're like, man, I can't, I can't. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go nuts if I don't eat. No, you can fast from technology. You can fast from uh, uh, entertainment. You can fast. There's a whole bunch of things that you can fast from. And the point is, is that you're putting something aside and you're saying instead of giving my time to that or receiving the benefits of those things, I'm going to direct that time towards God and towards prayer and towards um, seeking God's face on these things. And so let me encourage you to, to consider that. Let me consider you to make that part of your life because these are the assumptions that Jesus has here. So he says, if you're a disciple of mine, you should be doing these things. Now, the main point here, this, this first point of the two points that we have, is that it is, we live in the ever-present uh, danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Now, Jesus serves as our example of living righteously for the right reason. Now, I, I just want to stop and kind of pull the curtain back a little bit. When I preach messages like this, um, I, I hope you notice a pattern of, of coming back to Jesus, okay? Because I, I, I'm really instructed. I remember when Jesus rose from the grave, and then he was walking on the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that story? You know, he's walking around the road and the people that are with him, the, the couple guys were with him, they didn't recognize him, who he was. And so Jesus is pretty humorous. You read, read about it. He says, hey, what's going on? I'm like, hey, you've been under a rock? What do you mean? What's going on? This guy, Jesus, just died and all this stuff. And, and so the Bible says there that Jesus, beginning with the prophets, began to speak all things concerning himself. He took everything about the Bible and he brought it back to himself and how he was fulfilling it. They didn't know at the time that it was him. Later on, they figured that out. And so I think all of our preaching, all of our Bible study, all of our time together should be like what Jesus did on that road to Emmaus. How does it go back to him? And so so as you're reading your Bible, think about how does this go back to Jesus? What can I learn about Jesus? How How can I know more about Jesus here? So as I was getting this message ready here, I thought, well, here's these commands, if you will, what Jesus is telling us to do. And I believe it's always instructed to us to think through how is Jesus our example in this? And the reason why is because, I'm going to mention this later on again, is that Jesus doesn't, he's not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done in spades. Okay? He's our example of doing the right thing for the right reason. How do I know that? If you're taking notes, write down John 5.30. John 5.30. Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Because, and notice this, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If anyone had the right, had the, had the, the right uh, to seek his own will, it would be Jesus. But Jesus says, no, on this earth, in the incarnation here, I'm not seeking my own will, I'm seeking the one who sent me. Another example is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Here Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He says, okay, think this way. He says, Jesus thought this way. He says he was in the form of God, even though he was in the form of God. He did not count equality with God a thing to be tightly held onto or grasped. He said, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He took the form of a servant. He didn't come and exert his own will. He says, no, I am going to do what I do here for the right reason, that is to glorify the Father. And it was even when he was reviled, 1 Peter is one last example. He says this in 1 Peter 2. Peter says, when Jesus was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But notice this, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see, Jesus is like the perfect example of doing the right thing for the right reason. He was obedient, not because of reputation for himself, as the Philippians 2 passage taught us. It was to give glory to the Father. He says, I can't, I'm not here to do my own will, I'm here to do the will of the Father. We need to learn from Jesus' example. Jesus is, he's, he's put this out there and he showed us that if we do that, 
It is worth it, and it is right. So what is our motivation? Again, let me give you two references. 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. You've been, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you've been entrusted with the gospel. It's been a gift that God's given to you. He says, okay, I'm entrusting you to do something with this. But don't do it to please man. Do it to please God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man. So, we live in this ever-present danger of doing the right thing, but for the wrong reason. And if Jesus were here and he was teaching this and doing this, right, just like these 12 disciples when he was teaching, by, by this time the crowd had probably gotten a little bit larger, he was warning them and saying, okay, you know what the thing is to do is right, but make sure you do it for the right reason. And that's my plea to you today. Do the right thing for the right reason. Now quickly, secondly, is we also live in the ever-present danger of doing the right thing, yet receiving no eternal reward for it. Did you notice that in verse 1? He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He says, you're not going to get any rewards. And, and, and the thing is, is that what I think he's getting at here is that the, the propensity for us to be distracted and to settle for temple rewards, uh, rewards that will perish. If, if you do a study of the scriptures, you would be amazed at how many times the Bible talks about rewards, and then he compares even temporal rewards versus eternal rewards. And hear what Jesus is saying here. He says, if you do your works of righteousness, if you're exceeding righteousness, everything you're doing is to be seen by other people, to keep your image or to keep your reputation, then you've really just wasted your time. Because you're not going to get any eternal reward for it. He says, did you notice several times in these examples, he says, they have received their reward. Verse 2. And then in verse uh, 5, he says, they have received their reward. And then in verse 16, they have received their reward. What was he talking about there? He says, well, what they were working for, they were working for the reputation. They were working for the, the kudos from other people. They were working for the praise of man. So once they got it, they've received it. And the Father will not give an eternal blessing for that. So why do you do what you do? If it's not for the right reason, you might be simply wasting your time. But Jesus here says, he gives this, this, this promise that the Father will reward you in verse 4. The Father who sees in secret will reward you, verse 6. And then again in verse 18, the Father will reward you. So I was trying to think, how, how do we apply this? I think too many of our decisions are made by simply asking the question, what do I get out of this? Like meaning here and now, not eternally. Whether we choose to come to church, prayer times, do we choose to read our Bible in the moment, do you choose to tell people about Christ, do all those things? A lot of those decisions are made about me and my circumstances in that moment, and if it's a cost-benefit to me in that moment. And Jesus is saying here, he says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the temporal reward of what people are thinking of you right now. He says, your Father will reward you. Think eternally for this. Now, why is this? Why do we have this propensity? I think it's because we're suffering from a, a byproduct of a church philosophy that has been popular in America for several decades now. And that is that every, every church service has to be an experience. Okay? And if it's not, then I don't know. I don't know. Or every sermon has to, has to just radically change our lives. And if it doesn't, yeah, yeah. Or every, every children's song that we sing with the kids has to be super fun and super cool. And I was trying to think of what the, the, the cool words are today, and I'm officially old enough that I don't know what the cool words are today. So you think whatever it is. I know we're not using rad, and I know we're not using groovy. So whatever the words we are using, you know, just, just go with that. But, the, but the, what is it? Who, who's helping me out? What is it? Sick, nasty? Okay, so... 
Sometimes you preach things you never thought you would preach. Okay. So every children's song has to be sick and nasty. Is it sick and nasty or just sick nasty? Sick nasty. Okay. Alex is back there acting like he knows. You're old too. All right. You're old too. All right. Okay. So, okay. So we, we treat like everything we do, every youth ministry, everything like that, has to be you know, uh, uh, just so appealing to people that we're afraid of boring the kids so much that what happens, though, is that we produce spiritually malnourished young adults. Because when that's our goal, when that's our goal of, okay, and that's the, that's the rubric in which we use and we evaluate our songs, we evaluate our activities, we evaluate everything we do as kids, is we say, is it, is it fun? Is it cool? Is it sick, nasty? Is it whatever it is? And we, we do all these things and we say, that's what it has to be. We're missing the boat. Because we're going for temporal things and not eternal things. The goal isn't to make church fun and exciting. Now, I want it to be interesting. I, I try to hold your attention. I try to be, you know, uh, relevant as much as I can. I try to, to, to use illustrations that are helpful and interesting. I don't want to make God's word boring by any stretch of imagination. But if I get sucked into the vortex of trying to make the Bible fun and exciting to you, it's a losing battle. Okay? Because we all have different opinions of what is good. And that's not the purpose of our gathering. Our purpose is to teach God's truth. To teach what is appropriate and teach and to give our kids a sense of awe of God. Not, not is, is he hip, is he cool, is he whatever he is. Is we have to have an awe of God. You know, so as we minister to other people, keep this in mind. Don't, let's not go for the temple reward of the kids saying we're cool. Every one of us is a teacher, and I've, I've worked with kids for years and teenagers for years. And if I were to tell you that I didn't want the kids to like me, I would be lying to you. And let me be even more transparent. I stand before you right now. And if I said I didn't care whether you thought I was good, a good pastor or not, I'd be lying to you. I want you guys to like me. I'm shocked when people don't, okay? (laughs) But the reality is, that can't be what drives my pastoral ministry here. Because my goal is to try to give you a sense of awe of God, not of Jeremy. And if you're working with children, youth, and our church, have that in front of your mind all the time. Your job is to give them a sense of awe of God. And if they like you, if, you're your favorite, if they're your favorite leader, that's just gravy, okay? You know, some people view the benefit of being in church as, am I getting this experience every week? And, you know, the benefits of being part of a church, they're not measured in weeks, but in years or even decades. Uh, or in Adult Deception Bar, it was interesting. Wayne used an illustration. I thought he was going to go with the exact thing that I was doing today. It was a little bit different. But he was calculating how many times he had the privilege of hearing God's word preached to him in his life. You know, here, here's, here, here's an illustration of the benefit of being part of a church. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted you to think about this question. How many, how many meals do you think you've eaten in your lifetime? Okay. I did some quick math. Uh, I'm 37 years old. Uh, soon will be 38, April 30th, if you're wondering. Um, and uh, I have an Amazon wish list for birthday gifts. Um, so, um, 37 years old. So that means I have eaten approximately 40,515 meals in my lifetime. Okay. So some of you are younger than me, so that number's less. Some of you are older than me, so that number's more. But let's just say 40,000. That's a lot of meals, okay? Now, how many of those meals do I remember? There's a few here and there. I remember the first time I went to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse. That was like manna, all right? So there's a few of those meals that stand out to you. Like, wow. But, but I don't remember very many of them. But every one of those 40,515 meals played a role in my health. Some better than others, okay? <laughs> but they played a role in my health. You know, being part of church, 
That, that benefit's measured over decades. And you may not remember every sermon. I don't remember every sermon. I, I remember talking to someone, and, and, and they felt like they needed to capture all the sermon in, in one, at one time. And, and, I, and I said, I said, you know, by Tuesday, if you ask me what I preached, i got to think about it, okay? So I'm asking us to get one thing from the sermon and let that change us. But it's a healthy diet. And so we live in, the, in this, this danger, this ever-present danger of doing the right thing, but yet not getting the reward for it because the Father says he's not going to give us eternal reward if we do it for the wrong reasons. And so if you're coming to church and you're going for the wrong reasons, then you've got to repent of that. Because God's not going to bless that. God's not going to reward that. Don't be so caught up in the temporal reward of, I need it now. I need what happens now. I don't see the benefit right now, so I'm going to bail on this. No, no, no. Long-term view here. And we are promised eternal rewards when we do the right thing for the right reason. The Bible speaks of rewards in a lot of places. We've seen it already in this text. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30. Matthew 19, 27 through 30, if you're taking notes. Peter asked the question, basically, hey, I've given all things. Is it worth it? Jesus says, do not do not worry. I will reward you for it. The nature of rewards is ambiguous in the, in the scriptures here. It talks about crowns sometimes. It talks about ruling over cities. Is that literal? Is that figurative? There's lots of opinions on all that. And it doesn't really matter to me on what, what position we take in it. But what matters to me is the timing of them, that they're in the future, and what do we do with them? They're used to glorify God. And so here's what I want to point out. I, I don't know exactly what all those rewards look like in the Scriptures. I don't know exactly what, if they're going to be, like I said, literal crowns that are given to us. I'm not exactly sure about all that. But here's what I do know. I do know that there is a reward that I think we should be passionately pursuing. Okay? And it is the eternal reward of the Father. And what does that look like? First Thessalonians, just, just go to First Thessalonians quickly. I want you to see this. I was going to read it to you, but I want you to see it real quickly here. First Thessalonians chapter 2. First Thessalonians 2. Paul's talking about his ministry to the Thessalonians here. And let me draw your attention to verse 19. He says this. For what is our hope? This is page 986. 1 Thessalonians 2.19. He says, What is our hope or joy or crown? A crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming. He says, what am I going to brag about? What is it that I'm going to say, this is what I'm most proud of, of my reward that I've received from the Lord when he comes. He says, is it not you? You are our glory and joy. You see, the benefit, the eternal reward that Paul was passionately pursuing was people. was people that he was going to influence in their discipleship. And that when Jesus comes back, that there would be people that Jesus would come back for, that Paul had a hand in, that he was the vessel that God used to bring them to Christ, to help them in their spiritual walk. And he says, this is by far the best crown of, of, of rejoicing, of bragging, of pride that I have, is that I've influenced people people to follow Jesus Christ. So are you pursuing that eternal reward? You see, we get so caught up in the temporal things. But, I, you know, I don't know what the Lord's going to say of me. I don't know what people are going to say of me when I'm dead and I'm gone. But I pray, I pray that there would be people that have been influenced in their discipleship by my efforts. And I don't know what that looks like. And it doesn't really matter. But to me, that's something that lasts for eternity. Not just whether the kids think we're cool or not for right now. See, we go after the wrong thing so many times. And again, let me close with this, that Christ is our example. He, he was tempted by the devil to settle for temporal rewards in the wilderness, was he not? He was tempted to, to, to give up the glories of heaven for this, that quick morsel of food, much like Esau fell into that temptation when he gave up his birthright to Jacob when he said, you know what, I'm going to die anyway. So he gives up something long term for something very temporal. And Jesus had that same temptation, yet he said no. He delayed the reward of universal glory for the sake of the Father's plan because he wasn't going to 
caught up in the temporal thing. So we live in two dangers this morning. We live in the danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reasons, and we live in the danger of doing the right thing and yet receiving no reward because we've done it for the wrong reason. So know that God is more concerned with why you do what you do than what you do what you do. So let me close with this. Here's how I think we should apply this. Number one, I think it's a good idea to be suspicious of your own heart's motivation. But be generous in the assumption of other people's motivation. But it's a good idea to be suspicious of our own heart's motivation. Ask yourself, why am I doing this? Am I looking for the praise of man? Why am I doing what I'm doing? There was a Russian author, Turgenev, who wrote this. I don't know anything other than this quote that I read. He said this, I do not know what the heart of a bad man is like, but I do know what the heart of a good man is like, and it is terrible. He understood. And that's what God says. That we have a propensity. We have a propensity to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. We should be suspicious of that. Be suspicious of what we're trying to insert in the conversations and what we're trying to get people to view us like. Then we need to repent of those wrong motives. So number one, be suspicious. Number two, repent. Number three, don't waste your time doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. I mean, if you're here just because you're keeping up appearances, you're just wasting your time. So repent of that. Then number four, don't settle for cheap temporal rewards. Invest in eternity. And you know, I was thinking how to transition to the table here. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of our future blessing, is it not? The Lord's Supper reminds us that Jesus is coming back. And we're going to do this until he comes back. And then he will set all things right. And so we meet together at this table, if you're a believer in Christ, we meet together at this table to be reminded that we have an eternal reward that is coming. Jesus has paid for it. This is the payment we're seeing here, a symbolic representation of the payment that Jesus did on the cross of that future reward. You don't have to worry about being the temporal things now. It's the eternal reward. So let me remind you of two things real quickly here. First of all, the Apostle Paul, he said this in 2 Timothy. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will will award to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul knew that he had a coming reward, and that framed his actions. But Jesus promises this. In Revelation 22, he says, I'm coming soon bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. My friends, Jesus is coming back, and he will reward. So let's put our hope in those rewards and not in these temporal things. So Jesus, he says, look, you need to live righteous lives, but be cautious because it's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reason. If you do it for the wrong reason, There's no rewards. Let that be a warning to us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus' warnings to us. I pray we take them very seriously. I pray that you would do a work in our hearts of, of, of proper motivation. And give us a spirit of repentance when your spirit reveals to us that um that we have done things with the wrong motivation. I pray, Father, I pray that we would be quick to repent of that. And we're thankful that you will reward and you will give us things that we just do not deserve. But we're grateful for it. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Let me remind you a little bit about the Lord's...